If you will turn with me again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, or if you'd just rather look at the screen, there it is. We are on the fourth of seven letters um, to the seven churches. And just thinking about this, and I I talked about this probably back in our first or second um, message on Revelation, that Revelation is written in, in cycles. And as we look at it, we'll talk more about that later. But if you look at the, the letter to the seven churches in a cycle, almost a pyramid, we find the church of Thyatira right here at the top of the pyramid as we begin next letter to take our descent down. And I was thinking about these letters and what we are to make of them. And the common interpretation that's pretty prominent in evangelical circles is the idea that the letter to the seven churches are periods of time. Have you ever heard that? Um, A little note from, from Schofield on this. He says this quote, again, these messages by their very long, by their very terms go beyond the local assemblies mentioned. It can be seen that Ephesus Though a local church in the Apostles' day is typical of the first century as a whole, Smyrna characterizes a church under persecution from A.D. 100 to 316. Pergamos, where Satan dwells, is suggestive of the church mixing with the world in the Middle Ages. Thyatira reveals how evil progress is in the church and idolatry is practiced. Sardis is representative of the church as dead, yet still having a minority of godly men and women, as during the Reformation. Philadelphia shows revival and a state of spiritual advance, and Laodicea is illustrative of the final state of apostasy which the visible church will experience. All of that's lovely, except for I I find no basis in Scripture for it. The more I study these seven letters, the more I realize we have an immense amount in common with these church families. These church families addressed in these seven letters are us. For example, who are we to tell the church currently comprised in North Korea today that they're in the wrong time period because they should not be suffering tribulation? or the church in China, or the church in Afghanistan. They are dealing with real, palpable, oppressive tribulation. But they're in the wrong time period, so that doesn't fit. The reality of it is, is these are seven literal churches. As we see on our map, we move from one to the next in the mail carrier circuit. And what Schofield is commonly... um, preaching something pretty well accepted in the evangelical world. It it is speculative, speculative. but I think what he does get right is that there are similarities between these seven churches and the rest of of the body of Christ throughout all of history. That, That much is true. And what we do find is that these churches, these seven real churches, are experiencing the same thing that the body of Christ is experiencing in this world right now, and we are just like them. Thinking about these seven letters so far, we've looked at Ephesus, the church that was rock solid theologically that had left its first love 
Nothing to do with us, right? Smyrna, tribulation, poverty, uh, slander that they were experiencing in the in the uh, position of being in the synagogue of Satan under heavy satanic attack. Pergamum, dealing with false doctrine. And Pergamum takes, uh, the John takes Pergamum back to the time of Balaam and Balak and understanding that the church is trying, or Satan is trying to compromise the church, the body of Christ, and get her to yield the truth of God's word. Those things are common to us now, not just in certain particular times. So as we look at Thyatira this morning, I have five points. Um, we're only going to get to the first two. You were worried five whole points. Wow. Just two this morning. A little background uh, I wanted to share with you on, on Thyatira. Thyatira is a city that... Um, is in relative insignificance. Reminds me of Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Um, the congregation in this church would, would be easily categorized as working class or blue collar. I say that because if, if you look at Erdman's dictionary, I've got a couple quotes there, um, if you can read that small. But just a little bit of the context and background, as a city of commerce and manufacturing, Thyatira became well-known for many of its trades. Inscriptions and literary references mention trade guilds working in wool, linen, leather, bronze, armor, dye, tanning, pottery, and bakery. In addition, artisans from Thyatira discovered how to make purple dye with the matter plant root using without using the expensive shellfish murex. Lydia, a prominent Christian in Philippi, was from Thyatira and sold purple textiles, a vocation that fits perfectly the archaeological evidence. Paul likely evangelized the city during his two-year ministry in Ephesus, according to Acts chapter 19, verse 10. It is reasonable to assume that Thyatira had a Jewish population, like so many other Asian cities. The greatest hurdle for Christian discipleship in Thyatira was posed by the trade guilds. These were not merely business associations, but also religious and civic groups, which devoted themselves to patron divinities and indulged in sexual revelry. By AD 200, Thyatira enjoyed a strong Christian presence and continued to flourish, but because of its geographical vulnerability, it was at a crossroads with no natural defenses right here. It was sacked or overthrown repeatedly. We find in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15, that um, verse 14 of that passage, one who heard this was the apostles and namely Paul preaching was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Doing a little bit of research on these purple goods. This this was the um, the mark of wealth. If you wore purple, um, purple was considered a status symbol. So the people that were making this um, purple dye was counted as essentially equivalent 
to its weight in silver. That's how valuable it was. So the people that were extracting the root from this plant to make this dye to, to turn the wool purple and that the stuff that made these garments, um, these were the working class people. These are not the people wearing purple. These were the people making the purple for other people to wear. So you had all of these trades, trade guilds in Thyatira, and these trade guilds, guilds, you can't say guilds this morning, but you know what I mean. They were like the equivalent to our labor unions, right? They wielded the power. What they said went, and they had a ton of political stroke in the workings of Thyatira. But they weren't just labor unions. These were, these were the, the hub of religious worship and civil, civilization. So the question that really comes in is how did a Christian working in Thyatira do so by maintaining his or her integrity? Here you have to get a job, be a member of these guilds. They required certain things. And it, it really brings in the question, as I thought about this in the context, what, were the, what was this church dealing with? And if you were the average working Joe and you were trying to make a living for your family, what, what, what were you dealing with? Trying to put ourselves in their spot. And I, I, I found it to be incredibly similar to what you and I are dealing with. For example, um, have you ever had issues with ethics? To deal with in the workplace. We have, as believers, consciences. And it's incredibly important that we don't offend our conscience. Have you ever been asked in your workplace to offend your conscience? Um, some of you know I had a brief excursion into self-employment, and it was brief. And I, as I jumped in wholeheartedly and started to learn about what it took to be self-employed. And by the way, this is not a blanket statement on all people self-employed. So take this with a grain of salt. But as I dug into this and I began to talk to people that are self-employed, like, how are you doing this? How are you getting by? Well, the, the response that came back to me commonly was you can't report all your income. You'll never survive. Like, wait a second. I, at the end of the year, when I have to file my taxes, I have to sign on the line that I have told the truth and I have reported on my income. But you'll never survive in this environment if you do it. So just an example of the many, many times where we as Christians are put in the positions in trying to make a living and put food on the table for our family. And that's where this church found itself. They had they had to deal with crises of conscience on a regular basis. And how do we navigate that? How do we navigate that? At the heart of this letter is a church that, that I find to be very relatable. How do I glorify God with my money or his money while living in a corrupt system? Think of Daniel in Babylon or Joseph in Egypt. How do, I, how do I make a living, take care of my family without compromising who I am as a Christian? And even more importantly, not allowing money to become my God. 
how dangerous that idol is for us, is it not? And so it takes incredible wisdom and discernment to be able to navigate Christian ethics in a fallen and a corrupt world. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, it's easier easier asked than answered. But the simple answer is God's word. How are we to navigate in this life in a way that is pleasing to God? And the answer is always found in God's word. So I wanted to give you just a little bit of the background and the context for what this church is dealing with, because I find it incredibly applicable to who we are. Uh, Point number one. We find an introduction from the Son of God here. The to and the from of this letter. This letter is again addressed to the elder of the church, and I, I won't linger here, but it's helpful for us to be reminded of the fact that God has established, he has ordained, and he endorses this representative form of church government. And in our context, while there are parachurch organizations, some good, some bad, popping up everywhere, that... Um, encourage the do-it-yourself Christianity that we see in, in our culture, God's form of church government is firmly established here. And if we're to remain a biblical church, we have to follow God's biblical design in his order. First Timothy 3, we see the outline of elder requirements and deacon requirements. Um, and as I said, there are some parachurch organizations that are helpful so long as they're not trying to take the place church and God's design for it. But this letter again addressed to the elder of the church and it's from we see here the words of the son of God. Now this is an excerpt taken from Psalm 2. So if you're following along turn this turn to Psalm 2 for just a minute. And Psalm 2 takes this church family and Thyatira back the promise of the Messiah who will rule over his enemies and judge the nations with a rod of iron. As we've read this entire letter to this church, we find it later in the letter as God is warning them about judgment, he, he will hearken back to Psalm 2. And it, as we read it, I want to read it for you, it, it, it poses a very interesting question. Why Psalm 2? Why would, why would Christ go back to this imagery in in Psalm 2. Well, verse 1 says, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So as I'm thinking about this, it, it, it raises a practical question. Why Psalm 2? Well, what would the church have been studying on a typical Sunday gathering? What would the church in Thai, would they have been studying the book of Romans? Mm-hmm. 
Would they have been studying the book of Revelation? No, it's currently being written. So the, the, the bulk of what the early church would have been studying would have been what? Old the Old Testament. Do you think they would have known Psalm 2? Probably. So we see Psalm 2 open and close this letter to this body of Christ in Thyatira. And they would have known the Psalm well, the canon of Scripture not being yet completed. But the context of his letter is, is pretty clear. God's sovereignty and his victorious rule over his enemies. And this is medicine to their ears. They need to hear this as a reminder as the worries and despairs that often overwhelm them and us as we try to navigate this world in a way that pleases God. Um, They had some of the same concerns that we had. How am I going to pay my bills this week that that are coming due? Um, what about the security of my job? The things that often flood our mind and, and can overwhelm us with worry and despair. This church was no doubt in the same exact situation. Reminded of the words of, of uh, Mr. Spurgeon that says the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. This church needed to be reminded of the sovereignty of God um, and his rule over them and also over his enemies. The challenge for them, and we'll see that as we get a little further, but the challenge for this church was to remain pure and clean in in an unbelievably corrupt environment. James 1.27 says this, religion or worship that is pure or clean and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James makes it very clear that God's design for his church is that we remain unstained or unspotted from the world. And I believe with all my heart that we as believers long to do this. We desire this immensely, but we often fall short of this, don't we? And it seems out of reach. How do we remain undefiled, clean, if you will, especially in terms of our consciences as we navigate a corrupt world? How do we do that? The reminder here, I think, is in the attributes of Christ that he points back to chapter one regarding. He said this this letter is from the Son of God who has the eyes, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Well, what does that mean? We looked at that in great detail. But this is a reminder that Christ has unparalleled insight into our lives. Cam and I were having a conversation on the way down the mountain the other day, and he was telling me about an interview that he had heard from um, a Chinese citizen um, talking about government surveillance in China and how used to and accustomed she had become to being under total surveillance and how um, TikTok and and other um, apps, if you will, 
um, are, are being used by the CCP to control the population um, and essentially play God. And it's a, it's a state of, and we find this hard to imagine, but it is a state living in China of total surveillance. And this is the Chinese communist government trying to play God. But what they do with technology in their attempt to be God, God doesn't need technology, does he? What does he see? What does he see? He sees everything. We're reminded in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. How do we know that the heart is that way? Because I can look into yours and see that it is. No. God is making a declarative statement about the state of the heart because he sees it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, they have a so-and-so has a good heart? Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. We've heard it, though, right? It's like, bless your heart, where y'all come back, maybe. I don't know, but I've, I've, heard, I've heard that. So-and-so has a good heart. The scripture begs to differ. And who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. And we see this promise later in this letter to the church. I will give to you, to each of you, according to your works. Is there any escaping that reality? No, and, and it's, it's important for us to, to remember the fact that we are living in front of the presence of God. Um, you've heard it, you've heard it before, but we, um, Table Talk calls it Coram Deo or Coram Dio. It's Latin for before the face of God. And the concept is, is, is life-changing if we really grasp it. The Christian life is lived in the presence of God. We often think of God seeing what we do from an outside perspective, but as, as, as believers, what do we have? How close is, is God? He's indwelling us with his spirit. So every thought that we think, every motive of our heart, every action, every deed that we do in the dark that we think no one else can see, God is intimately familiar with. By the way, all those work parties that these um, trade guilds were having in the temples, you know, that, honey, I'll be late. I have to go to a work meeting. The Lord saw all that. He sees all the good and all the bad. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. He also in his introduction as to who this letter is from to the church in Thyatira, he harkens back again to the one who has feet of burnished bronze. This picture, as we trace it back in scripture, refers to Micah 4.13 as a good example. I will make your hooves bronze, meaning you will have military superiority as you trample down the enemy. The, the, the picture here of God having feet of bronze is absolute strength to carry out the judgment that he ordains. And so all of this is brought to bear 
to the church in Thyatira. Well, what does that mean to me? Well, just as God sees everything going on in the church of Thyatira, he sees everything going on in Word of Grace Baptist Church, doesn't he? He sees everything going on in my life. He sees everything going on in your lives. There is no hiding from him. And we often forget the fact that we are are living before his face, that he sees us and he knows us intimately. And he goes right into verse 19, point number two, we have the commendation. He says, I know your works. And the idea here of knowing, and he, and he said, he's saying this to every church. I know your works. I know them intimately. There is no arguing with God. There's this concept that someday we'll stand before the judgment seat and we'll be able to give it effects. Where God outlines all of the things that are in the negative column, and then we get to speak up for ourselves for everything that we think should go in the positive column. But guess what? Guess what? Our mouths outside of Christ will be stopped. The case against us will be so compelling and so complete, so thorough, that there will be no arguing back against God to say, but you overlooked this good thing that I did. He that that searches the heart and the mind knows us better than we know ourselves and will see past the lies that we lie about ourselves with. So point number two, we have the the commendation. He says, I know your works. And here's a list of them. Here's a church that worked. First of all, a church, a proper one, should be working. There is work to be done. And Jesus commends them for this. You are a church that is working. He does not accuse them of laziness or slothfulness. In fact, he lists out the things that they're doing well. He said, I know your love. The word love is is the, the word agape. Your benevolence, your goodwill. I see it. Check one for the wind column. I see your faith. That is your confident assurance in what you believe. Check another one. As the elder reads this to the church, they have to be thinking, win-win, right? He says, I see your service. The the word service in the Greek is (laughs) diakonoia. It's the word we get what from? Yes. I see your service, your ministry, your waiting on others. And I see your patient endurance, the word word meno, to remain under, and that your latter works exceed the first. So here is a church that worked, that loved, that believed, that served, that endured, and that was growing. What could this church possibly be lacking? Again, as we read the account of this body, it's, it's a church that we would happily be part of. So what was it lacking? Well, here's the problem. There is a but. And this was not one of the, the churches that did not have 
negatives associated with it. Um, in the early 90s, our family moved down to Sampson County, North Carolina, and lived there about a dozen years. And coming from the mountains of Pennsylvania to Sampson County, North Carolina, was a bit of a culture shock. One of the things I found that differed from the winding mountain roads in Pennsylvania is in Sampson County, you have roads that are for miles, as far as you can see, straight as an arrow. But one of the things I found very interesting when we first moved to Sampson County, North Carolina, Spivey's Corner to be specific, every road has a ditch on both sides. And I thought, what in the world are these ditches for? Well, because the ground is so low lying, the water has to go somewhere. So being a very heavily agriculturally based county, they do ditches on both sides of the road. And when it rains heavily, you know it did because the ditches are level with the fields and sometimes the fields flood. And over our 12 years there, we saw many and rescued many people that got in the ditches with their cars. Um, can think of a couple drunk drivers who did not realize they were in a ditch when we helped them get out. Um, and I bring that up because I see Ephesus and Laodicea as two ditches on the opposite side of the road. I want you to think about this for a second. Ephesus was theologically, doctrinally sound. And one of the things that the Lord lauded them about was the fact that they could identify the enemy. I mean, not only could they identify a false teacher, but they put them on missile lock. And when they walked in, they had the crosshairs on them. They knew exactly who the false teachers were. Why? Because they were well taught. They were well taught. But what was their, what was the downside of the Church of Ephesus? Yeah, they had left their first love. They had they had become jaded. When the church is is at war, if you will, it is very easy to look at the opponents of the church and become hard-hearted and calloused. So you have the church in one ditch. Then on the other side of the road, you have the church in Laodicea. And this church, as we will see, as we study further, had a lot of positive things going for it, but it had a naivete about it that it didn't share with Ephesus, did it? They had, and, and as we read further, we find that they had someone named Je uh, Jezebel. But again, this just like Barak and um, Balaam in our previous letter, this is hearkening back to something to illustrate a truth. They had things going on in that church that they were tolerating. So on one hand, they would say, well, we're a loving church. We're accepting. We want everyone to feel welcome here. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, they were welcoming in false teachers who were pulling people away from the truth of God's word and leading them into sin. So here are two opposite ditches, if you will, on both sides of the road. And Paul warns the Ephesian elders in, in Acts chapter 20, he says, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, 
Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Jude reminds us in Jude 1, verses 3 through 4, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning the common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Listen to what Jude says. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we make of these two churches? Which church would you go to, by the way? If you had to choose between Ephesus and Laodicea, which one would you go to? You're like, well, I'm not like either one of them. Well, I could see both of these churches, if they're both in the ditch, they've driven their car off and they're stuck in the ditch, criticizing the other church from the opposite side of the road. I mean, think about, think about ditch A with, with Ephesus. They're saying to the church in Laodicea, you're a bunch of immature simpletons. You guys haven't, don't even know what a steak is. You're still drinking milk. And then the church in Laodicea is saying to the church in Ephesus, you guys are cold, calloused, hard-hearted, and all you care about is doctrine, 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 doctrine. You're the frozen chosen. And so you can see, you can see the, the opposite polars and how we easily can get in the ditch. Well, what is the answer to it? The answer to it is to be biblically balanced. How do we keep it out of the ditches? How do we keep it in the middle of the road? There's a, a good illustration for this, and, and we're so prone to this, aren't we? And it's a sign of our immaturity. It really is. I'll give you an example of, of how we get into the ditches. Um, an article on, on work idolatry in Table Talk that I read, and the writer says this, work idolatry is work without rest, or what is sometimes called workaholism. Have we ever met a workaholic? Have you maybe seen him in the mirror? Now, the thing about being a workaholic is it comes with a certain badge of honor, doesn't it? We fall into, he continues, we fall into work idolatry when we engage in work without preparing for it with rest. Such work is ultimately meaningless and unsatisfying for people made in the image of God. So we have, on one hand, workaholism or being a workaholic. Well, what is the opposite side of that coin? What's the other ditch? Sloth. The dude playing video games on the couch all day. Why is everybody looking at Cameron? That was not nice. Ditch B. He says this, we shouldn't be surprised to find that rest idolatry is also a temptation of those living on the other side of the age spectrum. Um, he says it may be a greater temptation for those who are young, who do not yet have bills to pay, a family to support, mouths to feed. The demanding life of work and career lies ahead of them, and such a future can be truly intimidating. The prospect of a demanding career can inversely push someone to embrace 
a leisurely, restful life that rejects the burden of work. A deep tragedy occurs when a young person becomes trapped in a lifestyle of rest idolatry and never experiences the fulfillment that comes from good, satisfying work. You see the two opposite ditches? The older folks are not immune from this either. He says, we shouldn't be surprised to find that rest idolatry is also a temptation of those living on the other side of the age spectrum. Many people work their whole lives with the earnest expectation that one day they will retire from their careers and spend their days in what? Prolonged rest. Therefore, when they reach a certain arbitrary age, they believe that they have earned a life of undisturbed and unadulterated leisure and rest. This is an idolatry our culture has codified in labor laws. As if at a certain age in the human life, a person stops being a human made in the image of God and should therefore stop working. And it is a valid point. Where in scripture do we find the concept of retirement? Meaning, I don't work anymore. Um, in glory. Mm-hmm. But, but you see, the, you see the, two, the two ditches here. And here is the takeaway for us. Which one would you rather be? If you're going to pick either ditch A, the workaholic, you could say, you could argue, well, I'm benefiting so many more people if I'm in ditch A, right? At least my family's eating well because I'm working like a borrowed mule. Or ditch B, the guy that is staying on the couch constantly or living in his parents' basement until he's 45 years old. So who's correct? Church at Ephesus or the church at Thyatira? Both churches are in the ditches. That's the truth of it. And before we beat up on them, we need to ask ourselves very seriously the question, are we in the ditch? If I examine my own life, am I in the ditch? As I said a minute ago, our, our tendency to end up in the ditch in error is almost always a result of our immaturity. What is the remedy to our immaturity? Growth. How do I grow? The answer is always God's word. So if we're in the ditch, and, and you, you know what I'm talking about with this, right? Um, in reform circles, we see this frequently. We've all met the person running around touting that he or she is a Calvinist. And as soon as they find someone to beat up on, they're on them. And, and we can, in our lives, become a one-trick pony, as the old saying goes, because we've lost biblical balance. Biblical balance, keeping it out of ditch A or ditch B, is a result of maturity. And that maturity only comes from the Word of God. So when, when we are so honed in, so focused on one subject matter, by the way, there, there's a reason... We, we preach expositorily. You ever thought about that? If you've been in a church that, that, that preaches topically, 
sometimes there are topics that are of interest and you're thinking, wow, this is an interesting message. I can stay engaged with this one because he's talking right up my alley. But then when you're into message 11 of, of 18 in a series of, on offering and tithing, we have a problem. And, and the answer to being imbalanced in preaching and teaching is to do what? What do we do? We're to preach the whole counsel of God. Yes, topics will come up as we come across them in Scripture. But, but far too often, teachers and preachers are tempted to latch on to the topic that is of most prominent interest to them. And instead of teaching the whole counsel of God, and by the way, who suffers when that, that is the approach? The church. I need to hear the whole counsel of God. You need to hear the whole counsel of God. You don't need to hear what my pet issue is right now. That is how we grow and how we mature. And as we look at these churches, it's so easy to criticize them and say, well, we're we're not like that. But I would ask you to look at your own life. Look back in your life as you've matured. Do you see any difference? In your balance. And, and what's the way out for this? And there, just a, a, another thought on this. It's so important that as the body of Christ, we are patient with each other. Because we can beat up on each other and say, you have a blind spot. You are immature. And not see it ourselves. Well, how, what's the way out for this? Well, the answer, as I said, is God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul telling young Timothy, as an elder in the church, do your best to present yourself, 2 2.15, to God as one approved or battle-tested, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And the word handling there is the word cutting. If you're going to pick up and wield the sword in battle, and we don't send kids to war for a reason, why? Well, it shouldn't be done. That's number one. But number two, they're they're not accustomed to using weapons. To wield a weapon in battle, it takes skill. It takes time. How many rounds do you you have to shoot, Matthew, before you can sight that gun in properly and use it if you were in a battle? Yes, very, very expensive. Don't recommend it. No. But if you're to pick up a sword and wield it without cutting your ear off, It takes skill and it takes practice. Paul is telling Timothy, how do you get there? How do you get there? You have to study. You have to put in the work. We're to labor in the word of God to learn how to skillfully use it. Now, it's a given that teachers and preachers should study the word, isn't it? Yes, Danny, you should, before you preach, you should study Absolutely. But what about you? How do you hold me or anyone else in this pulpit accountable? Because what we're about to get into in the latter part of the chapter is they were allowing false teaching in the church to take place. What was the check and balance to stop that? What was that check and balance? You sitting in the pew should be studying the Bible so that you hear something up here wrong and say, that's not right. That is error. 
they called it out. There's just as much a responsibility on the hearing side of things as there is on the teaching or preaching side of things. Although, as we talked about this morning, there's a greater responsibility, a greater judgment. Are you following me? Whose responsibility is it to study the word of God? Everybody's. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, and, and being deceived. But as for you, in other words, the world around us is going nuts. Is that anything new? No. This is, this is what he's telling Timothy. But as for you, what do you do when the world around you is going nuts and bad men are doing bad things? What do you do? Well, the answer is very simple. Follow more Facebook pages that will address this false thing. No. What is the answer to the church? It's the same answer today as it was then. You continue, live there. The word meno in the Greek, live there in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How do I stay out of the ditches? Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be partially prepared. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for some good work? No, every. The answer to staying out of the ditches is God's word. So here's the question for you this morning. And don't worry, I asked myself this question before I ask you, just in case you're wondering. What is my relationship to God's word? How prominent a place in my life is it? You say, well, I don't have time. Or I'm just a kid. Why do I need to study the, the Bible? I'm just a kid. Or for some of us grown-ups who might be workaholics, we might say, but work. I don't have time to spend in God's word daily. Or for dad. Well, the kids are just too noisy tonight. We don't have we don't have the time or the energy to sit down and read with the kids. We're just exhausted. All legitimate reasons, by the way. You've all been there. So, how does this apply to us? Well, <laughs> Mark, you walked into a sermon illustration this morning and you didn't even know it you left your phone at home <laughs> um how many of you have your phone on you right now the honest ones what if you leave it at home what does that feel like like you just left your left arm at the house how are you ever going to function I used my phone at least three three times this week to navigate to a destination. I have maps on it. We have apps for everything. I can take a leisurely walk in the woods and, and click on a leaf, and it tells me what kind it is. 
which is helpful, right? Did I just roll in poison ivy unknowingly? <laughs> it's helpful. But they have, our phones have become our, our, um, our buddies. And I saw, I, I had an interesting question. And yes, I was on my phone when I read it. <laughs> but the question was, what would our lives look like if we treated God's word like we treat our phones? And I almost dropped it. But think about that for a second. What would our lives look like if we treated God's word like we did our phones? How often do we check our phones for updates throughout the day? How often do we look to our phones or the Google machine for good sound advice? I have a headache. What, what are the symptoms? What should I do? We, we were constantly looking for advice and direction. And I'll, I will tell you this, and I'm not, I'm not telling you guys social media is bad. It can be if it becomes an idol to us. But we have become so trained to scroll through thought after thought after thought after thought after thought, like, dislike, thought, like, dislike. Angry face, angry face, angry face. That news story, three angry faces. How, how does that affect our thinking? How does it affect our, our thinking? Are we really able to process truth and error like that? And my point to all that is simply this. The answer for you and I is God's word. How do I train my mind when I'm scrolling through thought after thought after thought at light speed to, to stop and meditate and listen to God's word? And the answer is most often scripture can't compete with that. It doesn't. And if we're truly honest with ourselves, how, what priority does the word of God have in our lives? I ask, I ask you this by way of application this morning, will you commit not to me, not to anyone else, but to God to make his word a priority in your life? Because chances are, if it's not, you're stuck in a ditch. The answer to being imbalanced in our walk and immature and hung up where we shouldn't be hung up as believers, stuck in a, in a, in a, in a cycle where we can't get past it, the answer is God's word. If we would give our minds to it, if we would put the labor in to work and mine out the truth, the Holy Spirit will do something amazing with his word when you invest enough time and effort to want to hear it. Does that make sense? I'll close with this. James 1, 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to anger, slow to speak. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone 
is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. How do we navigate this wicked world in which we live? How do we keep our consciences clean in a workplace that expects us to violate our ethics in order to get ahead? How do we do that? We do that by studying God's word and applying it to our lives. I would ask you this morning, is that a priority for you? We're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. And we started, and I highly commend it, we started in our men's Bible study this past week, a book on the atonement. And the first chapter is by um, J.I. Packer, and it's fantastic. And I wanted to share... um, a poem and mark if we could figure out how to put this music it'd be awesome i I love this poem it's written by joseph hart and he's and he is the one that wrote come ye sinners poor and needy have you ever heard that song this is that hymn writer and he says this as you turn to first corinthians chapter 11 I will do my best to make this rhyme as it should. He says, Oh, ye sons of men, be wise. Trust no longer dreams and lies. Out of Christ, almighty power can do nothing but devour. God, you say, is good, tis true, but he's pure and holy too. Just and jealous is his ire, burning with vindictive fire. This of old himself declared, Israel trembled when they heard. But the proof of proofs indeed is he sent his son to bleed. When the blessed Jesus died, God was clearly justified. Sin to pardon without blood never in his nature stood. Worship God then in his son. There he's love and there alone. Think not that he will or may pardon any other way. See the suffering son of God, panting, groaning, sweating blood. Brethren, this had never been, had God not detested sin. Be his mercy therefore sought in the way himself has taught. There his clemency is such, we can never trust too much. He that better knows than we bids us all to Jesus flee. Humbly take him at his word, and your souls will bless the Lord. I thought that was pretty good. Um, Even Jesse had to admit it was good. Um, As we come to the table this morning, and we think about that, um, reminded that in the atonement, in the work of Christ, he was our wrath absorber. And the just wrath of God that we truly deserve was absorbed by Christ. And the picture of him drinking the cup with his his disciples at the table was a picture of him drinking the cup of wrath. We find Jesus in John chapter 17 in his conversation with the father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, what cup is that? It is the cup of wrath. 
that he drinks down to the very dregs at the bottom. And so as we, we celebrate at the Lord's table, the table is open to every believer. We've talked about that. I won't dilly-dally on that, but I will say this. We are accountable, and God holds us accountable to not come to the table and take it lightly. It has incredible meaning. It is a means of grace in our lives. We don't just come to the Lord's table because it's a religious practice that we just do. God has ordained that observing the Lord's Supper is a means of grace in our life. It is for our good and our growth. And so before I ask um, Jesse and Mark to come up, come up and help serve, let's have just a minute to pray, ask God to prepare our hearts, and then we'll, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we thank you for counting us worthy because of the work of the Lord Jesus to come to your table. And this Lord is a picture of your fellowship with us. We don't deserve to eat at the crumbs underneath the table, but you have made us fit to sit at your table. Thank you, Lord, for the atoning work of our Savior. We celebrate it this morning together as a body. We ask that in our doing so, Lord, you might edify us, that you might fill our every hunger. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins, the shedding of blood, without which there is no remission. We praise you for what you've done through the work of our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.